0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. On Wednesday night, when I wrote to you as we all watched the events at the Capitol play out on screen, one of the themes of my note was that of identity. That in all the world, in all that we do, and in all that we are, in all our days, the identity that claims us most is that we are God's beloved more than any other label, more than any other role, no matter how closely or tenderly we may hold them, more than father or mother, spouse or grandparent, friend or child, more than teacher or doctor or lawyer or priest, more than anything else. If we are people of faith, if we are followers of Jesus, our core identity is that we, you, are God's beloved. This morning, our texts are all about identity. We begin by hearing a piece of the story of creation when God begins to separate the heavens and the earth, to separate the land from the waters, to begin to lay the foundation of what would be life here for us and for all the creatures with whom we share this fragile earth. And we hear that we and all of creation were created out of nothing. All that we know, all that we are was brought forth in the word in the love of God, and with the light of God breaking through the skies. The same skies break open, in the story we hear it in the gospel, on the day of Jesus' baptism when God claims Jesus as the Son. You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, in his earthly life with us, knows the same identity that we do, the truth, of being God's beloved. And in his baptism, he sets for us an example, a reminder that at our own baptism, that same creative, life-giving, loving light of God shines down on us in the moment that we are claimed and named as God's beloved. And this, image, this moment, this act of creation and of claiming and of naming is repeated over and over and over again for all of God's people, each one of us sharing in the same baptism as Jesus. In our epistle this morning, we have another reflection on baptism. You see, in the early church, within a generation, less than a generation, in fact, rather quickly, people had already begun to divide. They had found ways to disagree, they had created differences between them, choosing teams almost and factions within the church, saying that they belonged to certain teachers or to certain schools of thought. And baptism was one of the ways that they broke up the body of Christ, choosing to learn only from one person, one teacher, or to be part of just one stream of thought. And what we see in Acts is that Paul has to teach and remind and reframe for them that all baptism comes from above that it is a gift of the holy spirit and that there is only one baptism that each one of us shares one baptism that makes us who we are as individuals as the people that we are who have this one earthly life to live just like jesus but it is also this baptism that makes us who we are as a whole people A people of faith who are most defined by this core identity, who, when everything else falls away, or would tear us apart, or would divide us. A people who are called back to unity because of this identity, because each one of us has been claimed by God, and we know that each one of our neighbors has been claimed too. Named beloved, worthy, valuable, part of the community. And then each one of us is sent, just like Jesus, into the world to learn to love like he does, and to make that love in action the very center of our lives, our work, our hope, our dream. In a little while, when we renew our baptismal covenant, which is what we always do on this day when we celebrate the baptism of the Lord— We will make promises again about this identity in our lives, about how this identity is paramount, and about what it looks like for us to live out this idea, this promise, this example from Jesus of love in action, what it means for us to be claimed by this tradition, and how that means we live in relation to the rest of the creation that God so lovingly made. But before we do that, This morning, there is a special message for you to hear from our presiding bishop who has recorded a special word to the church for all Episcopalians to hear this morning. It is not often that we get to hear from Bishop Curry in the midst of our worship together. And so this is a a rare silver lining of this moment and the fact that our worship is virtual, because this morning you get to hear from him directly directly. So I ask you to listen carefully to our presiding bishop, to our chief pastor, to the shepherd of this Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement, and consider your baptism and your identity and the things that pull most tenderly at your heart. Consider, too, that heritage that we share with Jesus as you listen to our presiding bishop ask the question, who shall we be?
1: And now in the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. In another time of national crisis, another time of danger for our nation, in 1865, on March the 4th, Abraham Lincoln concluded his second inaugural address with these words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow, and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Lincoln knew in that moment, in the moment of a national crisis, a moment of great danger, that such a moment was a moment of decision when a nation, when a people must decide who shall we be? What kind of nation, what kind of people shall we be? A hundred years later, Martin Luther King faced the same reality. Who shall we be? The civil rights movement was waning. The great victories that had been won had been won. And yet now questions of poverty and economic despair and disparities raised an awesome specter on the nation. We were at war. We were at war in another country, but there was war on our streets. Nation was deeply divided. Cities burned there were riots, riots at national conventions of political parties. The future of the nation was in question. And it was at that time that Dr. King realized that in moments of danger, a decision must be made. And he titled his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos, or community. I believe as he believed, as Abraham Lincoln believed, as I believe you believe that we must choose community. Chaos is not an option. Community is our only hope. The truth is Dr. King spoke often of all that he did and labored for, was for the purpose of realizing as much of the beloved community of God as is possible on this earth. He spoke of beloved community. The Bible, the New Testament, Jesus spoke of the kingdom or the reign of God. Jesus taught us to pray and to work and to labor, For that beloved community, that reign of God's love in our time and in our world, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Those are our marching orders from Jesus himself. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Because I believe that his way of love, his way of life, is the way of life for us all. I believe that unselfish, sacrificial love, love that seeks the good and the welfare and the well being of others as well as the self, that this is the way that can lead us and guide us to do what is just, to do what is right, to do what is merciful. It is the way that can lead us beyond the chaos to community. Now I know, I I know full well that this may to some sound naive, to others idealistic. And I understand that and yet I want to submit that the way of love that leads to beloved community is the only way of hope for humanity. Consider the alternative. The alternative is chaos, not community. The alternative is the abyss of anarchy, of chaos, of hatred, of bigotry, of violence, And that alternative is unthinkable. We have seen nightmarish visions of that alternative. We saw it in Charlottesville just a few years ago when neo-Nazis marched through the streets of an American city chanting, Jews will not replace us. That alternative is unthinkable. We saw it in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where a public safety officer knelt with his knee on the neck of another human being, a child of God, just like he was, and snuffed out the breath of life that God gave him. The alternative is unthinkable. And we have seen it this past Wednesday. When a monument to democracy, the capital of the United States of America was desecrated and violated with violence by vandals. Lives were lost. A nation was wounded. Democracy itself was threatened. My brothers and sisters, This way of love that Jesus taught us when he said, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. This way of love that Moses taught even before Jesus. This way of unselfish, sacrificial love. It is the way to redeem a nation, to save a world. It is the way of hope for us all. But, but do not make the mistake of thinking that I speak of a sentimental and emotional love. Jesus spoke of love most consistently the closer he got to the cross. This way of love is the way of sacrifice, the way of unselfishness the way of selflessness that seeks the good of the other as well as the self. And that is the way of the cross, which is the way of life. And if you don't believe me, ask another apostle of love, not Dr. King, not Abraham Lincoln. Ask Archbishop Tutu. Ask one who gave his, has given his life for the cause of God's love in the way of Jesus. Ask him. Ask Nelson Mandela in your mind. Ask them what love looks like. They knew that the way of love was the only way that could guide South Africa from what could have become a bloody nightmare in civil war to the way that could build a nation. And it was not sentimental. Remember truth and reconciliation. They had to face painful truths. They had to do what was just and what was merciful. They had to do what the prophet Micah said. But the motivation and the guide was love. Archbishop Tutu said this, love forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones it's not about pretending that things are other than they are it is not about patting one another on the back or turning a blind eye to the wrong true reconciliation exposes the awfulness of the abuse the hurt the truth it could even sometimes make things worse for a while It is a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring forth real healing. Superficial reconciliation only brings superficial healing. This is the way of love that can heal our hurts, that can heal our land, that can help us to become one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So I would ask you to do two things. I'm asking you to make a commitment, a renewed commitment, to live the way of love as Jesus has taught us, And to do it by making a commitment to go out and bless somebody. Bless somebody you disagree with. Bless somebody you agree with. But to go out and and bless somebody by helping somebody along the way. Go out and bless somebody by listening to their story in their life. To go out and be an instrument of God's peace, an agent of God's love. And then I would ask you to pray. Pray for this nation, but pray with some specificity. Pray that we may have the wisdom and the courage to love. God of grace and God of glory. On thy people pour thy power. Crown thine ancient church's story. Bring her bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. With malice toward none with charity toward all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work, the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. God love you, God bless you, and may God hold us all in those almighty hands of love.